Is investment something that's always been on your mind, but you don't quite know how to get started on that journey? We are here to set you on the right course. Welcome to My Cashflow Academy's Investor's Corner with your host, Athena Paquette Cornier. We are all about getting out of the rat race through creating positive passive income through real estate investing. Here you'll hear from regular people just like you and the professionals who support us towards greater wealth. Learn before you earn, move from analysis to action, and find the right path to attaining the success that you've always dreamed of for yourself. Now, here's your host, Athena. Welcome to Mortgage Mondays. We skipped a couple of weeks, but we're back. So today, I just wanted to talk briefly about ways to hold title. I get a lot of questions about this, and I thought it would just be good to do kind of a how to do hold title 101. So how to hold title. You actually hold title to a lot of things and don't know about it. Your bank accounts, for example. If you just put your name on your bank account, that has implications. Whereas if you have your bank account with the letters TOD, that helps. That means transfer on death. You also hold title to your car. You hold title to your home. You hold title maybe to your boats, your other toys mostly things that have significant value. So for example, you don't hold title to personal property like jewelry and art. There's no way to own that because there's no title to it. So what I'm talking about today though is how to hold title to real property. So property that is real estate and has land to it or is on leased land, but that the property is real property. So because we're in California and there are other states that have this law called community property law. So when you're in a community property state, if you say nothing, the law decides or implies that the property is held in community property. So to change that, you actually have to hold title with specific verbiage. So community property is between husband and wife or domestic partners. And domestic partners in certain states are recognized the same as legal marriages because they fall under the same rules they're recognized by the state that they're in as a legal union. So community property is just that. So if you hold property in community property, both owners have equal management and control of the property and all the valuables can be conveyed with it. And then the purchaser who purchases a property cannot acquire part of it because the community is its own community. So that community would be broken in order to bring in another person. Then also community property that's held in community property is implied as a 50-50 percentage ownership. And I'm going to talk more about percentages in a little bit. So if one of the parties to a community property held property passes away, then 50% goes to their descendants, not to the other person. So a lot of people in marriages think that automatically, since they own the property with their spouse, if that spouse passes away, and let's say there are heirs, the first spouse would be the first heir, but what if there are children from another marriage and so on? So you want to be careful with assuming that you might own the whole property. If the property is passing by will, then usually it goes to the heirs. And so community property is the least favored way of holding property. So I'm going to move on to joint tenancy. So joint tenancy is for any number of owners, two or more owners. Typically though, it's used for people who are married, and it is one ownership. So where we talked about the 50-50 in the community property, now it is one title, one ownership. So the moment one of the co-owners passes, 
100% of the ownership of the property goes to the other person automatically without probate, without the courts having to do anything. Joint tenancy, when you hold property in a joint tenancy, it's automatically passes to the other owner. Now, if someone wants to come into the ownership of the property, besides the people who are part of the joint tenancy, they would be tenant in common. So you would actually have to deed that person into the joint tenancy. In other words, use the mechanism of deeding interest into all three or all four people, however many owners are coming in. Otherwise, the new owners are considered tenants in common. People love the joint survivor titling of property because automatically the property goes to the other person without courts, without anything else. So joint tenancy is probably the most popular and you do not have to be married or have domestic partnership. So for example, if you want to put your property in the title of you and your sister, you and your child, you and a friend, which I wouldn't really recommend, but you and someone close, and you're trying to avoid probate, this is a good way to do that. And I'll talk a little bit about why it might not be good for married couples. But if you just want to avoid probate, the joint tenancy mechanism, holding title and joint tenancy is a way to do that. And it could be between parent and child. That way, when the parent passes away, it automatically goes to the child with no probate, no claims to the property. In other words, if your tenants in common with your child, that child could actually sell the property to someone else, their ownership in the property. So when I get to tenants in common, I'll explain that more. Joint tenancy cannot be broken and it avoids probate. So this is a good way to do this. Now, if you get divorced, you're going to want to retitle the property because you don't want to be joint tenants with your previous spouse. So usually the property gets uh, retitled into either tenants in common or maybe one spouse pays out the other so there's no more co-ownership. But you just want to be careful with joint tenancy because it is one ownership. It's not separatable, if that's even a word. Okay, so if a new purchaser comes in, like I said, the new purchaser would be a tenant in common unless the joint tenancy is rewritten to include now three people in the joint tenancy. And the last survivor owns the property. So let's say there's three people who are joint tenants. Let's just say it's husband and wife and a child. So one of the parents passes away, then the remaining parent and the child are still joint tenants. There's a form you file and that's all. It's very simple. But what if now the second parent passes away, automatically the child has 100% ownership of that one title. So it avoids probate. However, you would lose the step up in basis if you're married. And I'm going to talk about that when we get to community property with right of survivorship. But with joint tenancy, you lose that. So that's pretty important for taxes and income tax and so on. And so the next one, so that was joint tenants. And I'm going to look to see if we have any questions. Um, But that's one ownership. You cannot sell your part of the property. So it kind of protects people against that if people decide that they're getting divorced and decide to flip the property to their kid or their new girlfriend or someone to wreak havoc, it's not going to really do that. You can avoid that. So they can't just sell off their portion. So we started with community property. In the state of California, if you say nothing to your title, whether it's your car or your house or any other thing that you would title, if community property is understood because we're a community property state, joint tenancy You actually have to title the asset in the words joint tenancy. Some people, you'll even see it like on a bank account, you'll see just some short letters, 
joint tenancy. So J-T-R-O-S, that's because that's super long. Joint tenancy with right of survivorship is just such, that's a lot of characters to put on a bank statement. So oftentimes they'll put those shortened letters, but that just means that whoever's titled into this joint tenancy automatically without probate will get the asset into their name when the other people pass. So again, beware if you're getting divorced or thinking you might get divorced, that's not the right titling to have on your property. So the next section is a combo. Love the combos, right? So community property with right of survivorship is the best of both worlds. So community property, if one of the people passes away, there is probate unless there's a family trust or something like that, in which case you wouldn't be community property. The property would be deeded in the name of the trust, right? So if you don't have that, though, community property means you're going to go through probate. So community property, though, is good for real estate anyway, because when the first spouse passes away, the property's value is stepped up in basis, meaning let's say you bought your home for $150,000. And when one of you passes away in the marriage, the let's say the property value is now $600,000. Then let's say that second spouse passes away, the property value is now at that 600000 So if you sell it, then you don't owe as much tax. Or if the spouse wants to sell the property, they would not have to count all that equity from 150000 to 600. Now just got wiped out as far as the taxation goes. And so that value at time of death is 600000 So let's say the remaining spouse sells the property for 800000 They'll only pay tax on that little bit of difference. So that's a huge benefit. And if you're just joint tenants, you lose that. So a lot of married couples will hold title as community property with right of survivorship. And that's because the community property thing allows the value of the property for capital gains or taxation purposes gets stepped up at the time of death. So that's awesome. And then right of survivorship means there's no probate. So it's a it's the best combo because you get the step up in basis and you get to avoid the probate if you haven't put the property in the name of your trust. Really, having your property in the name of a trust is probably the best way, and we're not going to cover that today. We have a question. My house is solely in my name. Does my house automatically go to my spouse? No. So if your property is solely in your name, it's going to go to whoever your heirs are. So if right now your heir is your husband, then he would be first. But let's say you have no husband, there's a process in California where the priorities of heirs, if, if you don't say anything on the title to your home or your car or whatever, and the state of California has an order in which people inherit. So what happens is that if it's your spouse, then the state of California says, oh, spouse is the heir number one, children are heirs number two, then it goes across to siblings, siblings are heirs number three. So if you're married, then Unfortunately, you would be putting your spouse through the trouble of probate, which is not good because that can take a while. You have to do publishings, you have to file things about what the property's worth. So you definitely want to deed the property into either a living trust, in which case you say, I want the property to go to my kids, I want the property to go to my spouse or whatever it is, but that avoids probate. Probate's very expensive and it's slow. So why would you put someone through that if you can avoid it? So titling your property is very, very important. So if you want it to go to a particular person, that's not in that chain. So for example, I have clients that they want to give a certain asset to their sister, but their sisters, it's kind of like the royal family, the sisters <laughs> way down the line. And so if you want to particularly give one asset to someone who's not ranked very high, but you want to make sure they get it, 
then you definitely want to title that asset into their name and yours, or much better put it in your family trust and your living trust and make sure that your wishes are followed that way and avoid probate. So I've seen it too many times when people pass away that assets are given to the wrong people because the person didn't actually make their wishes clear in a trust. So community property with right of survivorship says that, let, we'll give an example, if the house, you bought the house for 150000 and then it's now worth 600000 when you pass away, and your spouse wants to sell it to pay for college or have a trip around the world, whatever it is, they now won't pay tax because it steps up in basis to that 600000 and they pay the difference between that 600000 and whatever they sell it for. And then right of survivorship means that automatically there's no probate and everything is clean. So that typically is going to be for uh, husband and wife or domestic partnerships that are recognized by the state that you're in as a legal entity. It's not that you're just living together, not that you've been together a certain amount of time. That doesn't count. You have to be registered domestic partners. Okay. So upon the death of the co-owner, of course, it goes to the first owner. Now, if you have that's in community property with right of survivorship. We're assuming that it's two people because it's a marriage. In joint tenancy, you can have many owners. So it's the, on, upon the death of the last joint owner that the sole survivor has full possession of the property. So the next section, and we're not talking about creditors' claims today. We're going to talk about that another time. But just be aware that when you co-own a property with someone, all their, say, legal issues and debts can attach to the property. So that's one thing that you want to, if that's something that you worry about, especially people who decide it's brilliant to put their kids on title, not brilliant, right? Because when we're younger, we tend to have more baggage and we make more mistakes. So that is especially clear that it would be better to have your property in a trust. So the next section, so we talked about communities, property, We talked about joint tenancy. We could be anybody who's joint tenants, one ownership. Then we talked about community property with writer survivorship, which is a married couple who wants to maintain the step up in basis, but wants to automatically be able to avoid probate by the one ownership. The remaining spouse would get the property with no hassles. The last way I want to talk about is tenants in common. This is really for people who are not married and or want to have a percentage ownership. So the best example I could give is two or more people invest in a property, but they don't invest equally. So what that means is maybe I have 10,000 to put down, you have 40,000 to put down. So I'll be a 20% owner, you'll be an 80% owner in this rental property that we're buying together. So tenants in common is a perfect way because as the property goes up in value, we have the same ownership. And Hopefully we have the same responsibility with the debts, but we'll just assume for today that you're buying a cash flowing property. There's never any expenses. So it's just the ownership of the asset is divided up in percentages. What if you have four couples buying a really nice home in Palm Springs to share as a vacation home? That's a great idea. But the more people you have involved, the more difficult it can be. And what if someone wants out, right? So someone goes into it thinking, yeah, I want to co-own a house in Palm Springs. And then they decide, no, I want a big bear home instead. And they demand their money back. So you want to be clear on your arrangements with people. But the tenants in common is the way to own different percentages. So if you're looking at owning things that with people who aren't your spouse, that's a great way to do it. However, there are a lot of kind of 
potential problems. So since each co-owner owns a separate legal title, so all those, the 20%, the 80%, or maybe it's 25, 25, 25, 25, those are all separate ownerships, which means that each person can will it to their kids or to their heirs. Okay. So imagine one day you and your buddy, let's make it simpler. You and your buddy buy a property in Palm Springs together and property's gone up in value. You've been using, it's wonderful. And then all of a sudden you are diagnosed with something, you know, you're going to pass away. And now your heirs are going to be co-owners with your buddy that you bought this property with, let's say 40 years ago. So there can be more and more problems because what if your buddy has three or four kids and you only have two kids or vice versa, you can see that the ownership can get more and more complicated. What if you started with my suggestion or my scenario where you had four co-owners with spouses and with children, this gets really complicated. So when you're going to do tenants in common, you definitely want to have a very clear understanding of what the rules will be to get out of the deal who can transfer to what and be really careful with this. It's almost better to have a legal partnership that owns the property with all the legalities spelled out. But you want to seek legal advice and accounting advice when you're doing any kind of co-ownership with someone other than your spouse, even your children. You want to run this by an attorney, right? Everything should be run by an attorney when you're talking about ownership. So this is for two or more people The ownership can be divided into any number of slices. You might have heard of ticks. Tenants in common can be abbreviated into ticks. And when property values back in 2007 and 8 were going up really, really high, just like they are now, people were exchanging or selling their rental properties to buy more rental property. They'd run out of time in their exchange. And so at the very last minute, they would buy into real estate. Let's just imagine a commercial building in Texas where they would own like a 0.05 ownership. It would be like a $40 million property and they only put in 500,000, let's say. So that's a big chunk of money and they were co-owners with 50 to 100 other people. So you wanna be careful what kind of tick you're doing because those kinds of ticks are extremely hard to get out of because they're not liquid at all. If you're one of 100 owners, it's hard to find someone else to buy into your ownership of that building. So just be careful. So each owner's interest can be conveyed to other owners, right? So let's say I decide to sell it. Like I was mentioning, some properties are super difficult to sell or tenants and common ownerships are super difficult to sell to someone else, but a quarter percent ownership in a Palm Springs property may not be difficult. And so if you're a tenant in common and there's three others and one of your co-owners decides to sell their portion, you may not like that co-owner. So be very careful when you go into a tenants in common ownership. So also if someone dies, it passes to their heirs. So you want to be careful of that because now you might co-own a property with four siblings of the decedent's household. And then the other thing is the creditors can come after it. So again, a credit, let's say you own a property in tenants in common with three other couples, let's say, again, the house in Palm Springs as the example. And then let's say one of your co-owners files bankruptcy, those creditors actually would have a claim against that person's 25% ownership. So tenants in common, for my opinion, is very fraught with potential problems and big problems. So again, if you're going to own property, it's super important to examine the ways to hold title, 
it's really easy when you're married, but even then, you know, if you defaulted to community property, you may not know that you have to go through probate just to get the property into your name. Maybe you want to sell it when your spouse passes away and you didn't know that you were community property. So all of these have potential problems, but mostly I work with a lot of investors that want to hold property in the tenancy in common, and that can be brought with problems. So I hope this little Mortgage Monday was helpful. It's longer than normal, but I'm hoping I can help you avoid problems in the future by picking the right titling of your property and making sure you understand what you're doing. So I look forward to seeing you next week on Mortgage Monday. This Thursday and Friday, we're having Investors Corner both days. Thursday, we'll be with a lady who will explain to us what cost segregation is, which is putting depreciation onto hyperspeed so you can save even more on taxes. You will love that talk. It's getting depreciation in three years instead of 27. That sounds good, right? And saving a lot on taxes. And then Friday, bring all your tax questions because I have one of the most interesting real estate investors and CPA. He's an expert in all things to do with being self-employed and investing in real estate and all the tax consequences. So Richard Welling will be updating us on the new tax law, how you're going to save money, how you can save money. Get ready this year with your paperwork so that next year you have a really good looking tax return. Mostly for my investor crowd, you know, it's investor's corner, but anyone can learn from this talk with the CPA. So 5 p.m. Thursday, 5 p.m. Friday, but as usual, you'll be able to see the replay at any time you want. So thanks for joining me on Mortgage Monday, and I look forward to seeing you Thursday or Friday. This has been another episode of My Cashflow Academy's Investor's Corner with your host, Athena Paquette Cornier. We wish you all the success you deserve as you use what you've learned here out in the real world. Check out the blog post for this episode, along with many more helpful resources at mycashflowacademy.com.